You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Ladies and gentlemen, by way of introduction, this is a film about trickery and fraud, about lies. We don't talk about Napoleon or Julius Caesar. We're talking about Elmir. Elmir? Elmir? Who is Elmir? That question has yet to be answered with any real precision. Can I kiss you too? Certainly. Mm-hmm. Anybody wants to eat? In the world of the jet setters among us beautiful people, everybody knows Elmir. But Elmir, what? He has about 60 times the same name. Dehori? His call is made Ori, Uri, Bori, Suri, Kori, Bari, Dori, all the. Papa. With U R Y. 60 names. His real name was Elmir Ferenc Huffman. Then 60 personalities, as much lies and as much real. Well, sounds very <laughs> Jesuitic. <laughs> Yes, his world is a world of make-believe. I'm not an actor. Not an actor? Help me. I'm not an actor. I am not a professional actor. He's a leading actor in this movie. His profession, it's true, is painting, painting fakes. Among all fakers, Elmir is number two. Once I saw a man from Ibiza writing a book on fake who came to see me to Paris. He said, I heard you are the first man who bought a, an Elmir. That man's name was... Clifford Irving. The important distinction to make when you're talking about the genuine quality of a painting is not so much whether it's a real painting or a fake. It's whether it's a good fake or a bad fake. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Spencer Parsons. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Peter Flynn. Hi, Mike. Good to be here. On this episode of the Projection Booth, we are discussing F4 Fake, the 1973 essay film from Orson Welles. It's the story of, well, it's the story of a lot of things. There's art forgery, a phony autobiography of Howard Hughes, a bit of sleight of hand from our faithful narrator, Mr. Welles himself. I'm not sure if we can really spoil this film other than one very particular thing, so if you haven't seen this movie, go watch it right now and then come back and listen to us talk about it. Spencer, when was the first time you saw F for Fake and what did you think? Uh, the first time I saw it was right after its VHS uh, release in, what was it? I think it was 1996. And I was in Baltimore, Maryland. 
I'd read about it, and uh, I actually hadn't seen that many Orson Welles films at the time. I'd definitely seen Citizen Kane, and I had um, and I'd seen The Trial. I think those were the only two that had been available to me at the time. I knew I liked Citizen Kane, and I read that there was this, you know, quote-unquote lost film that had just arrived on home video, and I picked it up at Video American, and I, I actually have kept the receipt ever since, um, because it was kind of a big event. You know, as soon as the movie ended, I rewound it back to the beginning, and I watched it a second time. Yeah, it has become my, my favorite uh, movie ever since then. So, uh, yeah, I guess it was about 90, it's 96 or 97 that I first saw it. And you say you've seen this more than Star Wars. I've seen it more than Star Wars. And, and boy, I watched Star Wars a lot when I was a little kid, like a bunch of other little kids. I'm speaking, of course, of the first the first one, episode four. I don't call it a new hope. You're a purist like me. And Peter, how about you? Uh, when was your first time? I, I can't boast of uh, having seen Fake more times than Star Wars. But my story is very similar, very similar to Spencer's. I saw it you know, when it came out on VHS in the late 90s, whenever that was. Of course, by then I was a big Wells aficionado. I, I'd seen, I imagine I'd seen everything up until that point. So, and, and still nothing kind of prepares you for Effort Fake. You know, it's, it's, there aren't many other films like it. So it, it really blew me away. And yeah, I can remember rewinding it and watching it again and, and being blown away by that final twist in the, in the film. It still affects me. It still moves me. It's great. It's the film that really turned me into a Wells fan. Like I, I liked Wells before on the basis of the couple of films that I had seen, but this is this is the one where it was like, oh right, this is the guy. Now I'm really I'm I'm all in, and it colors the experience of all the films of his that I've seen since. Yeah, I can remember my my earliest memory of of Wells is I was a kid, maybe eight or nine. I'm sitting at home on the couch with my grandfather. Now, I'm working class kid, no concept of art or appreciation of art. We're just sitting there watching TV, probably our dinners on our lap. And I'm flicking around and I hit on this weird, weird black and white film with these weird angles and weird lighting. And I say to my granddad, what is this? And he said, oh, that's Orson Welles. It was it was touch of evil. And I remember thinking, vividly thinking at eight or nine, when people talk about art, this must be what they mean. This has to be what art is. And I feel that way about Effort Fake, more so than touch of evil. But uh, this must be what art is. I can vividly yeah. remember thinking that. This was a blind spot for me for a lot of years. And there are a lot of wells that I still haven't come to. And I'm kind of savoring them and i've really have enjoyed using the podcast as a way to just dive in head first and try to learn as much as i possibly can about a film looking at ambersons looking at otello looking at now this film and there are just films that i'm just like okay i really want to dive in i mean uh, uh other side of the wind you know, we did an episode before it came out where we never knew if it would come out and then one post to kind of like a a little bit of a an after game uh show <laughs> how much did we get right how much did we get wrong kind of thing yeah f for fake the first time i saw it i just i knew i was was going to want to do an episode about it and i think rob st mary turned me on to this one i literally gasped when there is that twist at the end. 
And until then, and and still now, even knowing what's coming, I am just riveted. And I'm riveted by the filmmaking. I'm riveted by the storytelling. And it's so wonderful the way that Wells injects himself into his own movie, that he's not just the narrator. He's not just the man at the movieola showing us how this stuff is all being put together, which, again, is kind of trickery, and just making us question every single layer of filmmaking. And I love that he starts at the beginning with just all of these little things where he's starting to set up stuff. And then by the end of the movie, he's got like six plates that are spinning and he manages to keep these spinning through the entire thing. I mean, the whole idea of Wells as a magician is so appropriate for this because not only is he tricking us, but he is also telling us that he's going to trick us, literally telling us that he's going to trick us. He's showing us enough of the trick enough of the magic so that he can make it even better when he when we realize that he's pulled a coin out of our ears or made a key disappear the magic hat or the magic box the instrument of the magic is the flatbed editor that we see him coming back to again and again and again that's where the magic happens in editing not only is the editing very fast throughout the movie, the way that he shoots the shoots and edits the magic in in the film is very very sly because it, it, it's interesting. We're used to editing doing magic tricks, and he actually in a I was watching closely the the magic sequences this time, and he uses the editing back and forth between a couple of cameras to almost get you wrong footed about how he's going to do the trick through the editing and not in real life. But then the trick is always resolved in like one continuous shot. It's it's like he's using editing even against itself and against our expectations. When the other side of the wind finally came out and we had a chance to see it, it it I, I loved it. I, I was kind of blown away by it. But at the same time, it 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 it's 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 not as magisterial having seen Effrafate because you can see that he's already developed that style of editing, yes. um, and had been working on it his whole career really. But I think it 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 hits that apex with Effrafake. Well, yeah, you look at Citizen Kane, the first movie, first feature he makes, and he's already – I heard a statistic, and I think it was like 80% of that movie has trick shots of one way or another, be it Black Velvet making things look like you're going off into infinity, the wonderful way that we go into Xanadu, the way that we go into the club and down through the skylight. I mean, just so many things in that movie are, are already tricking us. And that, yeah, he has now perfected this at this point. And yeah, we have seen him for, you know, lack of, of funds being able to do a shot in Milan and then the, you know, the, the door opens and then suddenly you're in Morocco. And it's just, so we know that he can do that. And this film, he is just, he's like a conductor, you know, up there just pointing out to different things and just going from one to another. And I love too, that he gets us into the groove of his voice, the way that he is talking to us in the very beginning, the way he introduces Francois Reichenbach, the way that he introduces Oja Kodar, who's going to come back and just, he's already setting up these pieces so that he can then play with them later on. Yeah. And it's, you know, you think you look at his career uh, by the time he makes this film in the early 70s, he's had everything stripped away from him. The money, the support, the backing, the love and affection of an audience, all has been taken away from him. And the one thing he has is that flatbed editor and that skill at editing. And I think that ultimately 
when everything else is taken from him, this is what he has. And this is how he weaves the magic, if you will, you know, through this this powerhouse editing again and again, shot after shot, you know. During this period as well, when he's reduced to nothing, he's actually do. there's no film like F for Fake. I'm going to preface what I'm about to say by saying there's really no film like this. However, there's a way in which he's in a bunch of films during this period to make money that he is using an image of himself and filmmakers are using an image of him that is very close to the image he creates for himself and after fake. And of course I'm, I'm talking about the, the run of these like, you know, really terrible uh, kind of documentary quasi documentary movies, like uh, the man who saw tomorrow, the Nostradamus thing. And you know, the, the late great planet earth where, where he's uh, you know, giving us crazy uh, conspiracy, Christian conspiracies. And I actually, I watched I watched those again in preparation for this and it's really really interesting like his use of authority uh in this particular movie he is very deliberately when he when given the control he undermines his own authority while having fun with it whereas these other movies attempt to strip mine his authority for their you know very dubious points I would add to that and say also it's he's on the talk show circuit at this point. He's back yes. in L.A., right? He's just doing Merv Griffin and, and uh, Dick Cavett and all these shows. And he's kind of fallen into this very comfortable role as as a host and as an interviewee. And I think that helps give the film its tone and its structure. And I was thinking of this. Um, you, you think of other essay films. And even that term, what is an essay film? It's very vague and, and uh, all over the place. But yeah. you think of like Michael Moore and Bowling for Columbine. I would say that's an essay film, right? It's got ideas and, uh, and, and you've got this figure at the center of the film spinning out these ideas. And Michael Moore kind of, you know, blazes into a location and, and demands <laughs> explanations from people, right? And then you think of some, someone like Anya Zvarda in The Gleaners and I. And she yes. just kind of ambles around and very quietly and politely inveigles her way into people's lives. And, <laughs> and, and you get this, you know, this, this wonderful essay on art and creativity and gleaning and all of this stuff, right? But you, you, then you, then you, you, you apply those two models where these filmmakers go out into the world to Wells. And it's like Wells, Wells brings everybody to him. Yes. And it's as if we're at the, you know, uh, the back table in a restaurant somewhere and all these figures come in and Wells just holds court. And the, 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 the flatbed is that way of just kind of dictating who gets to talk and when. And of course, invariably, the master of ceremonies is, is Wells himself. Um, I think it's it, that's kind of the way to look at this film for for me anyway. It's this kind of roundtable <laughs> restaurant discussion. It's absolutely out in plain sight uh, that he's editing together reaction shots from different times and different places to create these this sense of like an ongoing conversation. And he's he's like creating bits of an ongoing conversation out of these these stolen bits from different times and places and it it's not a it, it, i mean it's a trick but it's also not a trick because it's so obvious in the film that, that like if somebody wanted to complain about that it's like no he's being completely honest with you it's just the way that he's 
weaving everybody together and he's showing you a lot of what we take for granted in film editing and and I think particularly in documentary editing which is supposed to be truthful and anyone who's done documentary editing knows that well this reaction is actually to a thing that somebody said at another time but we take it as a larger truth if you watch or rewatch Air for Fate, go on to filming Othello, which is his last yes. completed film. And it's in that same kind of conversational film essay style. And there he has an interview that he shot with Michal McLeamore and Hilton Edwards. And two years, three years later, he shoots his reactions and his questions to them. And it's so completely, you know, just doesn't, it doesn't mesh together. But then, of course, it does, you know, in that in that <laughs> style that Wells develops. Well, this was also 1973 when I think this comes out originally. This is two years post the infamous Pauline Kale article that was saying that he was a fake and a phony and that he didn't create Kane and what a just a shyster he is. This is also after people are just convinced that Wells doesn't know how to finish a film, that all of these fragments that he has will never come to anything. And Wells just shows them up. By being able to do this, this was basically like the answer to those things saying, listen, I can start a film, I can end a film. As long as I have the pieces and parts, I'm going to do this. And if I can't, I will make the pieces and parts that he lifts things from stuff that he's already shot. You have like Lawrence Harvey shows up in this movie at one point and you're like, okay, that's probably from something else that well shot. I know that he was in the deep, so this is probably something from that. So that he's able to take all those pieces that even shows us at the beginning the uh, girl watching stuff with Oya Kodar and is saying, yep, I filmed this for something else, but here's an important piece that I am showing you. And also reintroducing you to Oya Kodar, who is going to be so important in the third act, for lack of a better term, of this film. The way to read the film on a deeper level is that this is Wells' response to Pauline Kael. It's Wells' response to the experts of Hollywood who gave him that honorary Oscar, which he didn't even turn up to accept. You know, he sent right. John Huston to accept it. And in accepting it, John Huston lambastes Hollywood for not supporting Wells. So there's this really ambiguous relationship to the so-called experts, whether it's Pauline Kael or the Academy. And you see that in 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 F of Fake. It's it's kind of you know he talks about the war of the worlds broadcast and you know, what rewatching it again recently I thought wow he really should have been talking about the Pauline Kale article and I think in a way he is you know kind of in yeah. between in in between the cracks and ultimately you know what 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 does he say in the film that these that the the experts are, are they serve no real purpose in the scheme of things they're the real fakes. It's actually a much more anti-Otourist brief than, uh, than Raising Cain is. That, like, yes, it's against the experts, but it also is making a case for, uh, for art making. You know, obviously there's the, the shark sequence where there is no author, you know, to, to shark. But also within this movie, there's a, there's a real question at every turn about authorship and what is the nature of art. If you're doing, if, if, uh, if you're faking somebody else's work, well, obviously, 
they're not the author, but then how much are you the author if you're faking their style? And it comes down to his use of somebody else's um, uh, documentary material that he's taking over and all these things. It's actually, uh, it's really interesting because it, it very much is, you know, challenging both the sort of critical expertise side, but it's also challenging the, the sort of myth of the one great author. And this also comes in with like Howard Hughes and Picasso as these major figures and the idea of the use of them as, as figures uh, and, and the connection, of course, to, to Citizen Kane is really, really interesting. So it, it takes on both Kale and, and in a way, Saris and a lot of others at the same time. And in fact, you know, Autourism is very much about critics. Even we, we think of it as being about directors, but the, the policy is so that critics can identify because they're smart and they're perceptive and they have the knowledge. They can they can perceive a filmmaker's uh, telling qualities over a number of films uh, that make them a true artist versus others who are maybe you know just uh, craftspeople or hacks. This movie also really calls that into question and is really trying to get at like what is what is the purpose of of the art making? What is the purpose of the storytelling? And I would say that it's also Wells's attempt to answer, why am I doing this? Why have yes. I spent all my life doing this? And, you know, that, that wonderful short piece, which I, I just think is, is one of the most mu- moving passages in all of film, where he writes, be of good heart, cry the, what is it, cry the dead artists out of the living past. Our songs will be silenced, but what of it? Sing on. And, sure. and this idea, sing on, I'm still making films. To hell with you all. Whatever you think of me, I'm still making films, and I'll continue to make films. And that makes me better than you. I, I think the implication <laughs> there is that I'm better better than you, uh, you <laughs> parasites, you know, that feed off of what I do. All of you so-called experts are parasites. That, that statement that, you know, all of our works of art will fall and crumble and, and, and what the ultimate uh, eternal ash or whatever that statement is. Um, but he says that this, this cathedral will mark that we were here and as evidence of what we had within us. And I think that's how he sees this film. This is evidence of what I had within me. So in a sense, yeah, it may, it, it may attack the idea of an author, but I think on another level, it's celebrating the process of art and, and the importance of his work in the face of kind of universal uh, dismissal. It's valorizing an audience over the critic and perhaps not necessarily over the artist, but as, as in communication. And there's that, that, um, that conversation with, uh, uh, with Edith Irving, uh, Helga R. Hughes, where, where they're asking about what do you think this does to the market? She says, well, if people like it, it's more paintings. And, you know, so she as a painter says that she's not necessarily against it because, you know, people like it and it's pretty. And there's actually something irreducible about that. And that I always have to, you know, it's like th- there are times where I'll make fun of other people for their artistic preferences. But, you know, when somebody just fucking loves Boondock Saints, I just have to stand back and go, well, it gives you joy. I have arguments, but like we as audience uh, in in uh, conversation with artists are are experts of a kind and and I think uh, you know that th- th- that's something that he's making a case for here that relationship between the audience and the art that's a really good point because it, and it also I think helps structure the film and give the film its style because it's constantly in dialogue with itself and Wells interrupts people he 
puts them on freeze frame. He pauses them so he can jump in and make a statement and then come back to a point. And again, it's that kind of roundtable discussion of these different filmmakers, different artists, um, different pieces of footage shot at different periods of times with different intent, um, all kind of coming together. And in the conversation, in the communication, this this organic statement on art and why we do what we do kind of emerges. It's uh, it's it's just such a <laughs> such a great film. Well, I've been thinking a lot about the way that so much of art is ephemeral. I mean, things like this, like you're saying, this movie wasn't available for so many years, and then finally it is, and now we can see it. Now we can watch it whenever we want. When it comes to artwork that you hang on your wall. I mean, there are so many things that we, you, the three of us, the the listeners at home, have never seen because, sorry, we aren't rich enough to own pieces. We don't go to auctions. We don't see these things. We have access to museums, but if it's not in a museum or if it's not reprinted in a book, then we don't ever see it. That belongs in a museum! Some of the things that Dehori is doing is being able to make art that's affordable to people then be able to reproduce things so that we can actually see some of these things yes they are not the true artist work we weren't in the room when they were painting this but at least we get to see the end result and i think at the end of the day that's really important that we can actually see this and enjoy this it's not a flattering portrait of picasso and uh, howard hughes doesn't come across very well in the film either but everybody else is kind of jolly and happy and (laughs) and these are people you want to spend time with but nobody wants to spend a moment with Picasso as as portrayed in this film. You know, he's locked up. He's peeping out the window. Howard Hughes is locked. These are antisocial people. And, and the people that Wells embraces in this film are the people who communicate and share and interact. Clifford Irving and Elmer DeHory, they might be so full of shit, but I would love to be at that dinner table. You're talking about him holding court. I would love to be there. I'd love to hear the stories. Knowing a bit about how Elmir died, which was not long after uh, this this film, it, it's interesting and sobering because it, it captures. And I, I love this about about film, and I love this about this film. It, it it sort of captures this joie de vivre and this this sense of a really vibrant, wonderful person who was you know he was on a path to commit suicide uh, rather than go to jail uh, for for his crimes just a little bit later and. Uh, and and the film makes no mention of that whatsoever, and uh, I'm kind of I'm kind of glad that it doesn't. There is that one moment uh, that I that I love. That um, there are a few moments that go to different emotional tones, but one of my favorites um, uh, is is when Elmir talks about having been in prison before, and he's showing his boyfriend all these pictures that he drew of the men in prison, and he talks about how one was waxing his mustache all the time. He just twirled his mustache over and over, and and there's this. This, this, uh, there's a melancholy to it. It's recognizing how awful this was for him. But there's also this beautiful, you know, th- like the movie never says, but it, re- it it really suggests strongly throughout that the boyfriend is the boyfriend. And it's this wonderful little moment of love between these two men that's captured in the movie. Um, and and it's, especially in a movie where then Oya Kodar is going to do the the uh, the big uh, swimsuit, uh, the, her own like swimsuit competition against herself, you know, for Picasso by the end of this movie that's this like other little wonderful moment of uh, stolen romance right yeah it is it's such a lusty film you know and i don't mean i mean in in all senses of the word but filled with life and there's this there is this wonderful melancholy to it as well 
um, but on the edges, kind of pushed away, is, is this real darkness. And it's the darkness of Wells' own life. You know, I think he said around this point, what I'm, I'm in the, in the center of the film world, but I'm making films out in the suburbs. I've been, I've been pushed out. Um, and there's anger and, and sadness and, and a sense of betrayal. All that's kind of been pushed to the edges of this film. And I think Dehore's suicide is, is part of that, you know, so much said and, and unsaid in, in the film, but there all the same. I just keep having to wonder how much of what Wells is saying is true or not. I love the moment when suddenly it becomes, we weren't going to do a film about William Brondolf Hearst at first. We were actually going to do a film about Howard Hughes. And here's Joseph Cotton to tell you all about it. Here's a, <laughs> And I'm just like, I don't know if I buy this, but this is still interesting nevertheless. Like, where is the truthfulness of Wells in this? And I think the only real answer is in the style of the film and the evident energy and passion that went into the way in which the film is constructed. Not anything that's, you know, said in the film, but more the style of the film. And that's fascinating. You know, this, this guy, we, I mean, he wasn't that old. He was born in 1915. So he's, what is he? That, that makes him, he died at 70. Yeah. So he's in his late fifties when he's, he's in his late fifties. Yeah. yeah. He's not that old, but he's, you know, he's in the, he's in the last stages of his career at, at, at this yeah. stage. And yet there's still so much energy to him. For a lot of obvious and, and maybe less obvious reasons that uh, other side of the wind is this is, is almost like the evil twin to F for Fake, dealing with a lot of the same issues. And, you know, that's a film that had to be finished by means where Wells couldn't have the full command. And I think that's part of, uh, you know, part of the feeling there. But it's also like this technique, which you can see in some of the the pieces of Other Side of the Wind uh, that, that, that Wells actually edited, you know, like the sex scene in the car, for instance, that's perfectly in conversation with the style of F for Fake. And that that movie, I think, is is this you know really morose, bitter twin to the quite joyful uh, effort fake. The film Jake Hannaford should be making in in the other side of the wind is of course effort fake. Oh, precisely. Well, and I think that's that's like one of the things I, I had these strange arguments with some people right outside of other side of the wind and uh, about um, you know how much of the film made sense, and they were like, oh, it doesn't make sense that he's going to be doing this this sort of Antonioni ripoff or or whatever uh, with within the film, and I was like, well, I I think Wells is doing this as a critique of the character, not saying that he's a great filmmaker, but saying that he's a very skilled filmmaker who's doing the wrong thing like that seems very much the point of that movie that's a, a, a nice segue into Oya Kodar and her yeah. level of authorship both in in Other Side of the Wind and uh, and F Fake what she brings I listened to her commentary track just the other night it's not very good I don't really recommend it there's not a lot of meat to it but um, I mean, she she repeatedly takes credit for writing certain sequences and particularly the Picasso story, which I, I, yeah. I those words are, are Wells's words. She may have come up with the story, but that's Wells in both yeah. the performance and in the writing. Lots of people have commented on the on the eroticism uh, of both both films yes. and have you know placed that squarely uh, on the shoulders or, or maybe the hips of uh, Oya Kodar, <laughs> you don't see that level of nudity or sexuality or sensuality in Wells prior to the to to F for Fake. It's something that she brings to this. 
Yes. And uh, it's something that you had intimated in, in some of your notes on this, Mike. <laughs> this camera is constantly oogling. Oh, yeah. Yes. Kodar. <laughs> Yeah, and I just kept wondering, like, is this Wells saying, look what I got? Or, <laughs> I mean, she is a gorgeous, gorgeous lady, but at times it's just like, wow. I mean, they, they make a point to say, like, this is a documentary about the fine art of girl watching. Okay, cool. But man, oh man, I was just like, talk, you know, Laura Mulvey would have a, con- a convulsion watching this movie. I mean, ultimately, the male gaze is that of, of, well, within the film, it's not Wells's gaze; it's Picasso's, and yes. it's impotent and 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 powerless in the in the face of this of this awesome piece of female uh, sensuality. Uh, maybe that's how Wells felt too, though. I, I think it's both. I think it's him saying, "Yeah, look what I got," but also, <laughs> how the hell am I ever going to hold this? You know. <laughs> He does. He does have her exit the movie with a much younger guy, you know, like one of those shaggy haired hippie looking dudes from the background is kind of uh, set as if as if that's her boyfriend. And in fact, may have been one of her boyfriends, because I think, you know, they they had a they had a relationship. It's a fascinating it's a fascinating thing. And uh, uh, the um, I, I think a key shot in all this for me is that beautiful zoom out that is from uh, from Oya's, you know, uh, I'm just going to say it ass crack. It's zooms out and discovers her posing and there's that perfectly there's that perfectly positioned paintbrush uh as if it's in in the in that's that's standing up uh sort of erect and is kind of painting her ass uh it's it, you know it's touches like that that have this real you know on the one hand it's a having cake and eating too but the, but it, it it is um it, it, it is almost approaching a kind of camp of, uh, of of the girl watching and a camp of the male gaze. Um, I mean, certainly that shot of Oya at the end of the, the near the end of the big sequence. It's the last one of her crossing the screen. She's got that ridiculous uh, all, like see through thing that in slow motion is training out behind her, and then is uh, that the hint that she goes into Picasso's place is is that that slips through the door as it closes. And there's there's this level where where Wells is uh, taking it too far, but yes, at the same time is absolutely doing one of the best of the genre of of what I call "Hey, look at my girlfriend" movies, which uh, you know many of the auteurs, uh, the big auteurs, are responsible for having made. Like his buddy Bogdanovich, which of course is part of the text of Other Side of the Wind, right? This this uh, yeah. yeah. It really is. It's like that Hall of Mirror sequence in 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 uh, Lady from Shanghai, right? There's so many layers and reflections going on in the, in in this film. I just love this whole thing that's at the core of the movie. This idea of Dehori having a book written about him by Clifford Irving, only to then have Clifford Irving turn around and be inspired by Dehori and say, "I'm going to write this fake." biography or autobiography of Howard Hughes to hear Clifford Irving say, my books weren't selling this book sold. And that questions the whole idea that you guys were talking about, about authorship, about experts, about, you know, what sells and things. And then him basically getting revenge on the world by saying, listen, I fooled all of you. And I've just been, I've been rewatching Alan Abel and Jeannie Abel films and just seeing how, pranks can turn the establishment on its ear and i just love that this is a it's a prank it's a hoax and i love that the the idea of what hoaxes can do 
You know, we have some recent hoaxes that, that fit this, this category actually pretty well. And one that I think of in relationship to Irving is the, the James Fry A Million Little Pieces hoax. He basically wrote a novel, couldn't sell it, uh, repackaged it as a memoir. And then because it was supposedly true, then people wanted it. And it's kind of like, well, then it must not be very good literature and you're, you're selling it for some other purpose or, or similarly, um, you know, JT Leroy, uh, which is a much more elaborate and, um, you know, sort of psychologically confused, uh, kind of hoax or prank, but there's, there's this level where you go, well, wait, it, were those, were those stories and novels by JT Leroy good enough or were they not? It doesn't really matter you know, what the persona of the, of the writer was and that you kind of demanded that there, that there, that, that somebody show up, even if it's a fake person at these like, uh, literary readings. So you can have a celebrity to flog. It seems to me like the celebrity part of it is the bigger problem or, you know, again, it's, it's like one of those things I feel like it fits in with this world of F for fake of, of, of expertise. Um, there's another side to the JT Leroy hoax, uh, which is really, really pretty sad and terrible and seems to have a lot of um, mental illness involved in it where the the hoaxer uh, was having these midnight phone calls with writers and the person of JT Leroy and telling them all these stories. And there's, so there's this additional side to that, but ultimately when it comes to the value of those stories, when it comes to the value of those books, were, were they good enough on their own or not? And I don't know that you have a right to be that upset if you're just a reader who fell in because you thought it was a trans kid with AIDS who wrote these stories, and then it turned out that it wasn't. Like, was it good literature or not? And and I think that's that's what um, you know to come back to F for fake. Like that's the situation with the paintings. That's the situation with Chart. Are they you know is it pretty uh, you know it, it, it's pretty but is it art? Well, isn't maybe pretty is good enough. I love that Wells is like, listen, I'm a faker too. I went to Ireland. I told these people that I was this major star from the United States, and that's what got me on my first uh, stage. And, and I love that. And that he then also talks about the War of the Worlds hoax, and we're talking about the UFO footage. And I'm just like watching the UFO footage and watching some of the other footage that he's doing. I'm just like, this is almost kind of Bruce Connor-esque, you know, just using this found footage and being able to to, to do that. Because there, it's obvious to us now, sitting here in 2020, of course you're going to just grab footage from another movie and throw it in there and and when you're talking about flying saucers you'll use this but then it's not necessarily that easy or that thing that you do and i just appreciate that he is laying the groundwork for so many things that we are still doing today there was a great thing on youtube where a guy was saying i learned everything i ever learned about making video essays for youtube by watching f for fake because it is so masterfully put together that's true. You watch some of these video essays and some of them are gold. Some of them are absolute crap, but the gold ones, it's just like, wow, you really put a lot of effort into this. You have an argument. You are able to take me through this entire thing and it's very well put together. And yeah, this is, you know, the, the groundwork for this is being done in 74. Right. And, and I mean, you look at the film and it plays out like fireworks. It's going in all directions, yes. but then you look at it carefully and you break it down and you realize, Wow, this this is intricately structured and very rigorously laid out. Um, it, it really is a masterwork of tight construction. 
from the get-go, Wells was never a, a, a pompous filmmaker. He was never an elitist. He was, you know, he treated Shakespeare like it was dime novels. And, and, I, and dime I think, novels like Shakespeare. And dime novels like Shakespeare. Exactly. Touch of Evil being the prime example. Yeah. But uh, – and I, I think, again, that lack of pretension just kind of plays effortlessly through the film. And, you know, I was I was reading something that Gary Graver wrote recently. He was the photographer on the film. And he said you – know, speaking about the all the, the, the footage that's in the film coming from a variety of different sources – there's a shot that is supposed to be of Howard Hughes in the film, but it's actually of Don Amici, right? And Wells is editing it. He's, he's, that's not Howard Hughes. That's Don Amici, but we paid for it. So it's going to stay in the film. And the, you know, the, 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 the audio that we hear of War of the Worlds is, was recreated and it's that's not right. even, doesn't conform to the script of the show. So he creates a forgery of his own radio show. Yes. In this, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, some of the shots of Oya walking and being oogled by the men is actually not Oya; it's her sister. So there's yep. all these kind of levels of, you know, fakery and lies in 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 the film. When talking about Hughes using doubles, it, it's actually it, it becomes a kind of magical mistake for uh, for Don Amici to be in there because it happens in the sequence where they're recognizing doubles, and so leaving it in is is it, it, you know ends up being I don't know it's magical it's it, there's there's this almost kind of uh, occult conjuring quality to uh, all these things coming together even when they're not intentional. And, you know, the idea of lies and, and is, is Wells, you know, is this is this a fake Wells? Well, you think, you know, all through the 70s, he's on all these talk shows and he's putting on a front. He's playing a particular part. And you wonder to what degree did he feel he was fake? You know, that he yeah. had been replaced by a TV star, you know, as opposed to a, 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 a filmmaker or a, or a theater person he'd become a, a, a talk show host those famous paul masson ads which are a huge part of like his image after a certain point and really you know i think you know obviously a lot of people take that as very sad in in a in a pretty you know basic and flat way but they're sad and interesting in this other way especially you know now on on youtube for years and years you've been able to find the outtakes from one of the paul masson ads you can see in the outtakes how fucking drunk he is Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There's one level where it's very sad. It takes it to this other sad level of like, oh, man, that's awful. But there's also this level of like, he is so fucking drunk. That is somebody who does not give a fuck. He showed up for this paycheck and he's going to take that paycheck and cash it to do other side of the wind. And he is fucking trashed for this job. There's something kind of beautiful about that in its selling out, but it's also really deeply sad. You know, they're all bound up together. Yeah, there there is a there is an element of heroism in it, and that he just you're right, he doesn't give a fuck, and he's above this. He's above this. He needs the money to do other stuff. He knows he's better than what he's doing. It's, it's unfortunate that you know for generations of of film students, that's their introduction to Wells, not yeah. Citizen Kane, not Afrofake, but these damn ad outtakes on youtube or they might not even know they're getting exposed to wells by having the uh the frozen peas commercial recreated by the animaniacs by pinky in the brain can you emphasize a bit in in july why that doesn't make any sense 
Sorry. There's no known way of saying an English sentence in which you begin a sentence within and emphasize it. Get me a jury and show me how you can say in July and I'll make cheese for you. I love those things talking about lies where he will just keep throwing in things like, but the lawyers wouldn't let us show this. Like he has more information, like he's sitting on this stuff and he wants to tell us about it. And he's inferring that there's more to this, but the lawyers won't allow us, ladies and gentlemen. He's always that faithful narrator, you know, it's just, okay, thanks, Orson. And we haven't said, you know, the, the thing that made me gasp the first time I watched this and the thing that he says right up front and uh, is just this wonderful, wonderful thing where he goes, Ladies and gentlemen, by way of introduction, this is a film about trickery and fraud, about lies. Tell it by the fireside or in the marketplace or in a movie. Almost any story is almost certainly some kind of lie. But not this time. No, this is a promise. During the next hour, everything you'll hear from us is really true and based on solid facts. And then we are sitting there, and at an hour 17, he goes, Time for a confession? I did promise that for one hour, I'd tell you only the truth. That hour, ladies and gentlemen, is over. For the past 17 minutes, I've been lying my head off. And when he said that, I literally gasped the first time, just like, oh my God. And I'm like looking at the time going, going, oh, wow, this is true. And even the other night when I was rewatching it, I kept hitting pause and going, okay, 52 minutes, 55 minutes, where is he at? And just so smart. The central theme ends after the shot sequence, right? That's yeah. the end of the film, 70 minutes. And then we've got this, yeah, this 20 minute <laughs> epilogue with uh with the picasso story which is wonderfully done right talk about you know doing so much with so little he has these series of photographs and the blinds effects the 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 cutting that that wonderful cutting when we go into the close-up of his eyes and then we go to picasso's paintings of eyes just oh just marvelous (laughs) marvelous to do so much with just nothing to be able to, to to take those elements and just put them together and be like, here you go. Here's Pablo Picasso watching my girlfriend as she goes down the street. And here's this idiot with the trombone who's practicing outside of his window. <laughs> and it's all just this mosaic of shots grabbed here, there and everywhere. You know, at one point we see him having a picnic in, in the middle of a field. And it was I think it was the house he was renting or living yes. in at that point in time. Right. We cut to. um is it the Orly station or the, the, the airport at the end? And yes. we've got this, this, you know, when we cut into close-ups and they were shot in Wells's home with, against yeah. a gray background and a fog filter on the lens. Just amazing. Amazing. First time, of course, that I saw this film, I couldn't see his shadow on the wall in the back. But then I, I think it was with the DVD when it came out, because the with the VHS, you know, you just couldn't tell. It was too murky. I, with the DVD, I could finally see the shadow on the wall behind. And I was like, you motherfucker. And it made me like it better. The, you know, that there's every little bit of fakeness and trickery that, that that enters the movie, everything that, that makes you go, oh, that's that's some bullshit, is actually pleasurable. And again, you get the sense that this guy never left his home and garden making this film. You know, it's just every day a boatload of footage would arrive on the door and he'd shuffle out and get it and load it up on the Steenbeck or the flatbed and just, you know, 
weave it around. I keep saying it. It's just such a great film. And you mentioned Gary Graver before to use him as this uh, TV anchor to be able to move the story forward with little news clips that are going on. And very heightened. And there's a zoom in and a zoom out at the at the point. And, you know, you think you, we mentioned the zoom in and zoom out on Oya. It's it's also such stylistically, it's such a contemporary film. This was the the guy, the, the classical filmmaker who made Ambersons and Kane. And now here he is several decades later operating in the in the parlance of the time, you know, in this very kind of hip filmmaking style that, you know, came from the new wave filmmakers or whoever. He's more youthful at the end of his career than he was at the beginning. You get the sense that he was a kid pretending to be older than he was, which, of course, he was right in many instances. And now he's this older man with this very youthful spirit and energy, at least in his films. I loved going through the early reviews of this movie as it was playing in different festivals and nobody could agree what the title was which was hilarious i don't even know is there a title card on this because people were calling it question mark people are calling it hoax people are calling it fake because we have the the titles of uh, irving's book going past us so it was amazing that no one could even agree what the name of this movie was for at least the first year when it was out and there's no title on it that says f for fake that there isn't one we see on the flatbed the, the title fake coming up, which yes. leads me to believe that uh, at that point in time, the film was going to be called a fake. And there's also on fakes. And, and there's that bit that Jonathan Rosenbaum uh, points out, the mistake, practitioners instead of practitioners. In the, the opening credits, you know, with, uh, with, uh, with Orson Welles and uh, several expert practitioners. Well, speaking of the reviews, I just read before before we logged on for this, I was glancing down through Roger Ebert's review. It's not that good. And he says it's minor wells. But he has this great <laughs> analogy, which is, is fitting and completely wrong. Uh, he says you get the sense that Wells is gearing up and getting the orchestra tuned, but the orchestra never plays. It's just the clash of violins and, and these discordant sounds, which – you know, on first glance, that's how the film is. You know, it's kind of all over the place. But uh, no, Ebert is is dead wrong in that. This is major Wells. In the wake of this, he had planned all these kind of essay films, beginning with filming Othello. That's a lesser Wells film. It's not that great. It doesn't have the energy or the style of Effort Fake, but it's in the same vein. And then, of course, he was planning one on the on the trial, filming the trial, which. I, right. Just, I think he started, but like so many things, didn't didn't finish. I don't know if you guys have ever read this stuff, but one thing that I wanted to get into a little bit was um, I, I went back and read um, the Clifford Irving book uh, on on Elmir, and then also the on the hoax, which then was turned into a pretty bad Richard Gere movie a few years ago. Those things go hand in hand a lot of times. They do. I, I actually kind of liked I, I kind of liked Richard Gere's performance in it, but it was a really it was a really uh, it, especially compared to that book. It's just a really conservative 
conservative and dowdy and like not fun, you know, sort of version of that story. And the book is actually quite wonderful. But like one of the one of the things about the Clifford Irving book is that like it's uh, there's another magical element that these are people that really do go together because there's there's a part of the the Irving book, um, the hoax where. Well, one, he's he's constantly referring to himself as a kind of actor, you know, that in writing the text, he has to become an actor. And um, he and his his kind of partner in crime, they mentioned Stanislavski a lot and everything. And one of the big ways that they wrote it was to interview each other. They would sort of confabulate these Howard Hughes stories uh, by interviewing because they had to turn it into interview notes that could then hoax the the publisher. Um, so they're constantly talking about acting, which of course is is like one of the major. Um, I mean, acting is a is a huge topic of F for Fake as well that we haven't haven't talked about that much. But then additionally, there's this passage that's uh, uh, that's really really quite beautiful. Um, that is the uh, uh, Howard Hughes telling his story of uh, going to meet Ernest Hemingway and striking up this friendship over a couple of years, and that and in the story, this is what's amazing is that the best stories within the Howard Hughes autobiography are themselves about subterfuge. So Hughes uh, lies to Hemingway and pretends to just be some pilot and tells him all of his piloting stories, which are real, but they're, they're Howard Hughes. And he doesn't reveal to Hemingway that he's really Hughes. And then eventually he reveals, and it's kind of this, it's, it's this, this moment of a kind of downer. And the big takeaway that the fictional Hughes has is, man, Hemingway was great. And if only I'd been a friend with him uh, during this key period and before uh, he committed suicide, I think I would have been a better person and maybe he wouldn't have wanted to commit suicide. And it's this sort of crazy thing, but it's almost like a Wells kind of, it's a very Wellsian sort of story uh, that, uh, that, that feels like it would fit right in with the Picasso story, for instance. Again, to bring it back to F for Fake, uh, the big point that I took away and that I wanted to discuss was this notion of acting. And there's that line at the beginning of F for Fake, which is that a magician, there's no such thing as a magician. There's an actor who plays a magician. And the entire idea of the girl watching sequence is to show us this real documentary proof of how all these men look at women that is then setting us up for Picasso uh, looking at, uh, at a woman at the end of the film. That is what really impresses me so much is just how he sets those things up at the beginning that will pay off at the end. And just the little thing of Oya on the train and then the thing of Oya with the girl watching and then it comes back. And just, you know, the the thing that you said about Ebert saying that it was uh, an orchestra that's tuning up. No, they are. All of these things are so deliberate. All of these things are crucial to the way that the story is being told. It may look slapdash, but it is not slapdash. Yeah, I mean, he spent over a year editing this film, if, if, I'm, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. I mean, this was something that he labored over. And it, it was it was he thought he was onto something new. He thought he had a new style of cinema, a new kind of genre, if you will. And uh, of course, it didn't go anywhere. It, 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 it bombed. And uh, I, I think that, you know, kind of predicted the rest of his his what was 12 years of life that he had after after fake was released uh unfortunate he describes all these guys that are doing the girl watching as you know they're all acting away there's this way in which um there's uh, so many levels of performance and then when we get to picasso at the end picasso can't actually act 
Uh, but somehow Picasso does act through editing. You know, that it's all these photographs of Picasso that create some acting while Oya Kodar is acting. And then the beauty, and then the, the final payoff, in a way, to, the, to some of these notions of acting is that Oya is a kind of uneven actor in the performance that they have at the end where they're telling the grandfather's story. But actually, her unevenness becomes, in a way, a sort of truthfulness. I'm buying into the story more because I'm not expecting her to be an actress. I'm expecting her to be Oya Kodar, this real-life figure who pulled this scam, who then showed up for Orson Welles' movie. And what I mostly see her performing is her love of Orson in the scenes. Her line readings are, are kind of wooden uh, in a way that I, that I really love. But you can see in her eyes that she's so excited to be here and that uh, she's projecting you know, all this love towards him. And it's a, you know, beautiful, beautiful notions of what is, what is acting at this point for an actor and a great director of actors you know, in his career. I remember I, um, Gabriel Byrne, I met him once. We were, we were talking about film acting. And he said, you know, I met an editor once who said, uh, who said to me, he said, don't worry, I'm going to edit you a good performance. <laughs> it was some, some Gabriel Byrne film. He wasn't sure about his performance, but the editor said, I'll edit you a good performance. And of course, you know, um, Wells and many times over is, is dubbing actors lines because they've gone, they've moved on to something else. Uh, Touch of Evil, of course, uh, chimes at midnight. Every other voice in that as well. It's, um, and then, yes, he's cutting performances and sometimes it's over the shoulder shots with a different actor, right? And, and I, I, I would imagine that Oya was shot days, weeks, months, years after Wells's sequence in that, you know, and just kind of stitched together. Uh, Wells's performances have this weird, unreal, feel to them because of the way in which the films have been stitched together. But I agree, Oya is no great act actress. But it doesn't hurt the film in, in this case. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't doesn't hurt it in the slightest. Um, uh, there, there are some moments of other side of the wind. And again, you know, who knows what it would be with with Wells actually editing these sequences. There are some moments where her performance is just exactly right. Uh, but there are others in the, in the movie where it's like, I don't know. <laughs> I think it was Jacques Rivette who said that every film is a, is a documentary of its own making. Right. That, yes. that we see. And then that's Certainly true of of um, uh, the other side of the wind and F for fake and I suppose all of Wells's films too that they bear yes. the marks of how they were made. You just know that when Peter Bogdanovich is talking to somebody in in Other Side of the Wind that that other person is not there that somebody else is there. So you have these just odd performances in in a lot of Wells's uh, films people speaking different languages too clearly the lip sync is not you know it reminds me of um Heart of Glass the Werner Herzog film yes. where, where he had all the actors hypnotized right so they get these weird performances and it's the same is true of Wells's films you know the cutting cuts up the natural flow of performances and line readings and of course the questionable sound too changes um, changes things. And that's certainly the case with Other Side of the Wind. And that sounds like a criticism, and maybe it is, but it gives Wells's films these, this kind of unique touch and flavor. And I think it's in, it's in F for Fake as well. Well, that's the thing. Good films can stand up to criticism. We can sit here and make some of these picks and stuff, but it doesn't detract from the film. This isn't going to stop Spencer from watching this 10 more times before the end of the week.
there's a kind of fetish around uh, sort of ideas of a perfect film. And one, I'm just not sure that that's possible. But to the degree that I personally have seen perfect films, they're fucking boring. I, they're boring to me. The films that have, um, you know, the, the creator's fingerprints, uh, you know, like on a on a pot that they've thrown, seeing evidence of, of the art making. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of a, a bit, I'm, I'm a conflicted Fincher fan. Uh, and the conflict is that like that guy really wants it to be perfect in a way that's just not very interesting ultimately. So I watch, uh, you know, like I love Zodiac, but when I watch a movie like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, I'm watching almost more with this like morbid curiosity of like how and why is it a is is it a good idea to expend this much effort on perfecting a story that's so just thoroughly cruddy bad mystery that would hardly uh pass muster on murder she wrote you know just this cruddy plot and it's got great actors everything's overqualified about it but fincher uh you know he's perfecting everything every frame and you know i'm still a fan i still and i've seen that movie a couple of times because there's there's some there's a fascination to like the way that he's perfecting things but the the perfect film you know and the idea of wells you know people have that idea because of citizen kane maybe uh and and elements of what they can see in Ambersons of like Wells being this like masterful filmmaker who perfects things. And um, the later, the later films I think are a lot more interesting in, in their imperfections. I mean, particularly the, particularly his really radical sense of how to use sound. I don't think it's just a mistake uh, that the, 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 that like he goes out of sync quite often. These films are really, they really have a very strange and particular relationship between sound and picture where sometimes the sound is, leading and it's the sound that is utterly in charge and it's almost like we've got this radio play that is conjuring pictures into existence and then a moment later it'll turn and we get this sense that like oh we're, we're looking at these very rich images uh, and these are the sounds this is the music that's associated with it when you talk about the perfect film I always think of Vertigo which recently <laughs> topped Kane on that and I find Vertigo to be so boring and so dull and so lifeless, like the dummy that gets thrown out of the window twice, even though the second time around it's supposed to be a real woman. And it's a dummy. And I think that's the perfect metaphor for that whole film, Vertigo. And Wells hated Vertigo for, I think, oh, the same reason. You know, it's just a kind of a stiff film. And uh, Hitchcock grew old as a filmmaker. Wells never did. And there's that whirlwind of energy. You look at Citizen Kane, and Kane has got a couple of those awkward moments. There's some obvious post-sync. There's a sequence when Ray Collins is coming down the stairs, and the, you know, and he's he's exposed Kane's affair. Uh, and there's some very awkward lip-syncing, post-syncing in that sequence. They change right. the dialogue or something. Um, so even in even in that film, there's an element of that roughness that Wells would kind of embrace and 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 uh, turn into a virtue. Well, those soundtracks in his early films are so much more layered than the soundtracks of other like auteur directors of that period. You know, it's like he's really way out ahead because, uh, you know, I love I love John Ford and I love Howard Hawks. But the the soundtracks of their films are just not nearly as rich as well. And you can you can associate that with radio. But I think it's a whole way of thinking about cinema that that he he really pushes forward uh, with with sound and in, in F for Fake. There's there's a way in which I, I feel like this movie and its editing and its picture editing and its sound is kind of taking analog devices and is willing 
the the aesthetics of digital editing into existence you know digital sound editing and digital picture editing getting at this like fluidity of both together that really only becomes possible i mean it's obviously possible uh but only possible in an easy enough way for most people to try to imitate when we get you know avids and pro tools uh you know coming up in the 90s you you only start to see these kinds of techniques come up with like errol morris for instance instance, uh, is, is an adopter of, uh, of, of F for fake kind of techniques in the mid to late nineties. And, and we start to see it filter, but it's, there's really a long period where it's just technically not possible to imitate, even if somebody wanted to, or even if they were influenced by this film. And of course there's that fetishization of, of the analog flatbed and of film. And, uh, it's, it's a, it's a document of a, of a vanished means of making films. Just reading, um, and it's a great book, by the way. I recommend it to everybody. Paul Hirsch's uh, book about his career as an editor. And he, he edited uh, Brian De Palma's Blowout. And he said, you know, I saw the film recently and I see all this kind of fetishized shots of the of the moviola and it's, it's Travolta splicing together the still frames. And, and I think that's what my craft used to be and is no more. And F for Fake has that feel too, you know. It's a, it's yeah. a film about filmmaking. We see the film being made as it as it progresses, which is, you know, another fascinating uh, aspect to it. And where it's kind of a bit of a gimmick in Persona, although I love Persona when the film breaks down, you know, yeah. uh, it's uh, you, you, you suspect that it's because Bergman couldn't figure out how to get out of the film. You know, what the what have I cornered myself into here? And, and OK, I'm just going to have the film fly off the reel. Um, but with Wells, he's in he's in command of the machines of of, yeah. of film, total command of it. But there's this love, love letter to it as well. Well, it's interesting, too, because there's almost a meta without a meta, you know, that the means of telling the story is simply I'm making a film. You know, it's it's like meta versus naturalism. You know, like the, the, the meta is I'm giving you the different layers of, you know, fiction, nonfiction, whatever. Whereas Wells is almost in a, in a realm of naturalism of of not uh, of actually being kind of anti-illusionistic. I mean, as illusionistic as the film is, there's an anti-illusionistic mode of address here where it's like, I am a filmmaker. Here are the cameras. Here's the editing. It's not just for, uh, for kind of meta gags. It's, it's to be straightforward in how the story is being told in the same way that many books are straightforward about their writing, but that we're not as used to in, in cinema. It's certainly postmodern and deconstructionist long before those things were uh, fashionable. He was working on Don Quixote alongside this. And so anyone who's a fan of Don Quixote is postmodern from the get go. (laughs) And Don Quixote is shot in contemporary Spain, right? We see neon signs and cars and yeah. And then of course is the voodoo Macbeth, the the, the Nazi uh, Julius Caesar that he'd, he'd put on and on stage. So he was already mixing and mingling these, these different elements fusing them into something else. So let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play an interview with the author of At the End of the Street in the Shadow, Orson Welles in the City, Mr. Matthew Asprey Gear, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. 
This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. This episode of The Projection Booth is brought to you by Tor Books. When George Romero passed away in 2017, New York Times bestselling author Daniel Krauss finished Romero's final zombie tale. Set in the present day, The Living Dead is an entirely new tale, the story of the zombie plague as George A. Romero wanted to tell it. Read The Living Dead by George A. Romero and Daniel Krauss on sale now wherever books are sold. Hi there, Faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts catchers both android and ios matthew i'm very curious why you decided to write about orson welles long before i ever thought about doing any kind of research into orson welles career uh, i just loved his films i guess when i was in my late teens i discovered uh, citizen kane and the magnificent ambersons and actually also f for fake as far back then really all about the same time and I guess one of the things that I found really exciting was how different his films were from each other. You know, each of the films had so much in it, but they seemed to just be like their own little universes. So as I uh, went on and uh, I ended up doing a PhD in in film, film and literature. Yeah, so I, I wrote a chapter of my thesis on Touch of Evil, another one of my favorite Wells films. Yeah, and again, as time went on, uh, my research just sort of, I, I sort of discovered that, you know, Wells is, is there's so much to his career. And, uh, you know, he sort of became, uh, you know, like a bit of an obsession. And so I decided, yeah, well, I, I'm going to write a book and uh, I want to do a, a kind of monograph on, on, you know, his whole body of work in film. I was always very interested in how he filmed cities. I think from, you know, when I first saw Touch of Evil, I saw the 1998 reconstruction that, you know, attempted to sort of honor Wells' vision of that film. The opening shot, you know, the very famous long take uh, moving through the streets of this border town blew me away as it blows most people away. Wells filmed cities in a really unique way. And the more I explored his films, the more I realized, wow, he made films in cities all around the world. Uh, sometimes in studios, sometimes on location. He kind of invented his own cities on the screen by cutting together bits and pieces from different locations. Once you start getting interested in Wells, it, it can kind of be an obsession. So that's that's really the part that led me to write the book about him. The name of the book is At the End of the Street in Shadows, and that definitely fits for so many of the, the cities that he is shooting. The title is taken from a line in a, in a radio play called Fall of the City that was written by Archibald MacLeish. And uh, Wells performed in that. It was a radio play, I think, 1937. 
And there's a line in it, uh, you know, about this figure in the distance at the end of the street in shadow. And then I would see, as I was doing a lot of reading of, of Wells' screenplays, uh, I kind of see this line would turn up in all sorts of strange places. I think in the, uh, he wrote a screenplay in the seventies based on a Graham Greene novel called The Honorary Consul. Wells' screenplay was called The Other Man. The exact same wording pops up, you know, there's, there's an, there's a description of an image of a car, I think, at the end of the street in the shadow. And it just kind of was something that I, I thought, well, that's very Wellsian. I mean, maybe it's a bit too long for a commercial book title. Maybe I should have just called it Streets and Shadows. But yeah, that's kind of where the title comes from. And there have been books in the past that cover Wells filmography, you know, critical studies, some very good ones. And I was going to do a critical study of his body of work, but uh, in film, at least, I guess this kind of guided me with a, with a very different take on his films. Uh, it definitely, I mean, he was really, I think, an urban filmmaker with some small exceptions. I mean, all of his films are really about cities and urban settings. Um, so it, it didn't really mean that I had to ignore very much um, or downplay very much in his filmography. I mean, it's my particular interest beyond the films of Orson Welles. I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in how cities appear on film generally. And I think he had a very, uh, very personal view of, uh, of what cities mean to culture and the way that, uh, power operates in, inside a city, inside, you know, the architecture of a city. That's something you particularly see in Touch of Evil. I also think he was very interested in how cities develop across time and the way that, uh, that transforms the lives of the people who live in them, which is what you see in something like The Magnificent Absence. It was a kind of a prism to look at his body of of work in film uh, that nobody else had really done on that scale. It is also in that line of critical studies of, of his body of work, I just guess from a different angle. I suppose when you mention cities and wells, I do think of Touch of Evil. I do think of the importance of Tijuana, but I also really think of the trial and just how oppressive the city is in that. The city and the trial, you know, is such a, I mean, this is, this is really coming at a point in Wells' career where I think he was consolidating a lot of the, the, the filmmaking techniques that he'd been exploring, uh, at least from the late forties when he moved to, to Europe. Um, the trial came out in 1962, and if we go back a little bit to when he was making a film of Othello in the very late 40s, in the early 50s, you know, he was doing this on his own dime. He was periodically stopping his uh, filming to go and do a few acting jobs, and then he'd come back with some cash to continue filming his own film, Othello. Uh, he made The Third Man at that time, actually, for the for the cash that he would be able to funnel back into into Othello. This very strange way of making a film kind of by patchwork, you know, meant that he was shooting some things in, in Morocco and then he'd be moving to Italy and taking a few shots there and then in different cities around Italy. Um, and then he would piece all that together in the editing room. And, uh, you know, he, he, he gives a famous example of there's, you know, somebody's kicking somebody, uh, in Morocco and an encounter shot. It's, it's in Italy. So this was, a, I think, initially a kind of a matter of necessity, you know, because he just didn't really have the funds to shoot uh, all the actors together at the same time. He'd have to use doubles a lot. And anyway, I actually think he came to really enjoy making films that way and kind of constructing his own sort of, uh, you know, space 
by having bits and pieces all stuck together. When it came to the trial, one reason this film would have really appealed to him was because, you know, the kind of the dreamlike quality of Kafka's work gave him the perfect excuse to um, create this city, which didn't even have to uh, obey the rules of spatiality, you know. So the famous shot of uh, Joseph K. leaving uh, one room outside uh, through a little door and then coming out in through a huge door. I mean, that's just, you know, a very obvious way that he flaunted, uh, I guess, kind of spatial continuity because that was part of the it was it was the mood of the film. Yeah, so I think he really loved uh, creating the city of, uh, of the trial from all these different bits of pieces. Some of it was filmed in Zagreb. He said the reason he went, which is which was in Yugoslavia, what was Yugoslavia at the time, now Croatia. The reason he said he was attracted to filming in Zagreb was because uh, he couldn't film in Prague, where Kafka had been from uh, at the time because of the Cold War. But Zagreb had been a city in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, so it had something of the flavor of that sort of old Prague. Uh, although, strangely enough, Wells tended to, for the most part, focus on the modernist uh, buildings of Zagreb that had sort of postdated the period of, of Kafka's life. He also filmed uh, parts of the trial inside the Gare d'Orsay, which was at the time still a train station or an empty train station in Paris. And he would just combine bits and pieces of these various locations to create this sort of dreamlike city that's just perfect for the story because the logic of uh, of the trial is is a kind of dreamlike logic. So I think he, he found a very happy kind of excuse or justification for working in that mode. Uh, in Othello, I mean, he was ostensibly, you know, attempting to, to make something which was supposed to have continuity spatially. Um, and he managed to sort of pull it off because he was such a genius editor. But uh, I think as, as he went on, he really liked uh, making these films by patchwork. And he was looking always to kind of find a story justification for, for that technique. Well, I think he definitely found it in F for Fake, just being able to use the pre-existing materials, shooting new materials, and just the way that he manipulates that Reichenbach footage. It just is amazing. The best way, I think, to think about Wells, particularly when he's working on something like F for Fake, is as a bricoleur. Uh, he's creating a work of bricolage, which means he's using the materials that he happens to find at hand. So the whole process of, of making a film like Ephra Fake, I think, came out of things that he, he happened to have. So there's the Francois Reichenbach documentary about Elmir de Hori. Wells takes that and he takes the outtakes from that documentary and kind of starts to fashion his own essay film on, on fakery around that. But then he starts incorporating uh, his new footage that he's shooting, including with Elmir in Ibiza. He starts incorporating bits, you know, segments from films that he hadn't completed, like the girl-watching sequence uh, in Rome, which I believe was filmed for a TV uh, special. He also uh, incorporates uh, things like newspaper headlines and still photographs and stock footage. Uh, there's all that great stuff from the saucer, uh, Flying Saucer movie. Um so, yeah, I think he really loved uh, the spontaneity that he found in that process in the editing room. And he, he himself, by putting himself in the editing room in that film and presenting the film kind of from this stylized editing room, was sort of inviting us to see how he's sort of explaining the process of of how he came to make this film. I mean, it it is actually kind of 
pseudo bricolage. You know, a lot of the stuff that he says is kind of fictionalized. I mean, even, you know, this whole, I think he sort of tries to pass off that, uh, he had been at that original interview with Clifford Irving, uh, when uh, I don't, that's not true at all. I mean, it was a Reichenbach uh, documentary. The process that he was using to kind of combine all these very disparate materials became really exciting to him. And I think he kind of wove it into the fictional aspects of the film as well. I mean, we see, I think, you know, a mirror of that kind of thing in The Other Side of the Wind, which has its own kind of fictional justification for why it's drawing upon so many disparate film materials. I think he loved having a, a story reason for why he could combine all these different things. Plus, you've also got, you know, in the center of the other side of the wind, there was this unfilmed by the director, the film within the film. He both loved uh, the spontaneity of being a kind of bricoler, of just using whatever materials he had at hand. And then he, he would find kind of fictional justifications for being able to use that. So an effort fake, I think, is really like the point in his career where he consolidated a lot of the stuff that he had been experimenting with back in, you know, for, for more than a decade, really sometimes 20 years, I'd say. I had read that Reichenbach actually hired him just to be an editor at first. Is that true? You know, it's a bit hazy. My understanding is Wells was invited to be the narrator of this documentary, or at least in its English language version, which was, for the BBC. Again, it's, it's it's a little hazy. I have looked at the documents uh, that have survived. Uh, the Turin, the National uh, Film Archive in Turin, Italy, has a lot of the Efrafake papers. They have, you know, scripts and letters and so on. Um, my understanding is he was asked to do narration by François Reichenbach. Reichenbach had made a documentary about Wells a few years earlier, so that's, I guess, how they came to know each other. And I think Wells got very interested in Elmir as a character. He loved Hungarians, especially these kind of self-invented charlatans. What happened was uh, Wells became very interested in the documentary and thought, well, I can use this or reuse this uh, myself. And then while he was kind of turning it into his own film, which, which I believe was after it had, had actually been broadcast, and Wells didn't actually provide the narration for the English language version, as it turned out. I think while he was making it and then the Clifford Irving, Irving scandal broke, he suddenly realized, well, now this can actually be a bigger film than just a, a study of Elmira as a forger. It can be a, a broader study of uh, fakery. It sort of became this sort of expanded essay as, as the events of, of, I guess, what happened in late 1971, early 1972 uh, just emerged while he's making the film. I'm so curious what else you found in those archives. The kind of first uh, collection of documents uh, that really became public uh, was at the Lilly Library at uh, University of Indiana, so in Bloomington. They have a large collection of papers relating to really the era of the Mercury Theater and the early years in RKO, really Wells in Hollywood up to about 1947. And it's an amazing collection. It's been open for a long time, so a lot of other scholars have have been there, have done a lot of great research there. It's really incredible to, you know, look at memos and scripts that were used during the production of Citizen Kane, for example. Other Wells archives opened to scholars. So there's the University of Michigan has some of his later 
papers that were sold to them by Oyakoda. She inherited a great deal of his papers. So they had kind of later scripts and letters and everything. And then there's another archive at, uh, at the Munich Film Museum, although that's for the most part a uh, an archive of film materials. And the Munich Film Museum have done some restorations and presentations of this sort of unfinished late work, some of which can be seen in the documentary One Man Band. But the the most recent sort of uh, collection that's been publicized uh, is in Turin, yeah. So I was in Turin a couple of years ago on a research project. Wells never stopped working, and he, I think every day of his life he was sketching out a plan for some new film. Uh, he was writing scripts. He was writing treatments. He was literally sketching things for films. So there's just an enormous quantity of paper that takes a great deal of time to sort through to even get your head around. But the Ephra Fake papers, I mean, I believe there's a lot of Ephra Fake papers in Michigan as well. Uh, but in Turin, this is the most recent stuff I've looked at. And they had a screenplay that actually had some scenes that were never, well, I don't know if they were filmed, but they were scripted. And I don't know if uh, at some point they got excluded from the final cut of Ephra Fake. I know there was uh, sequences about bullfighting in the original conception of Ephra Fake. Uh, Wells was uh, looking into the idea of fakery in the bullring. Hemingway had, in the late 50s, criticized uh, some of the practices that were going on in Spain at the time of shaving down the bull's horns and all this sort of thing. Wells uh, was sort of picking up on what Hemingway was talking about, not uncritically. The whole idea of fakery was, was, you know, at least in this original script, it was being explored from many different angles. I think he was even looking at things like how bread by the time of the 70s was no longer the kind of authentic bread. Bread had become a fake thing. It's always very interesting to see the process at work and, and, and how he would sketch out ideas. Beyond all of the stuff about Elmir and Clifford Irving and Howard Hughes and his own history of fakery, I've been to all of those four archives at the, at the University of Michigan. At the time I went there, I, I, it really had only been open, you know, for a couple of years, I think, uh, to researchers. And so I felt like in, you know, in many ways, I was uh, one of the first to access this material and, 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 you know, certainly to write about it. They were very helpful there. A great deal of the documents uh, from that period are there in, in Michigan. And so, yeah, they have many, many scripts uh, for films that he he wrote and tried to make and never never was able to make. And, you know, previous critical studies of Orson Welles, you know, his filmography, you know, were kind of by necessity limited to the films that had been commercially released in his lifetime. Since he died, you know, there have been a number of posthumously released film projects uh, you know, the most famous one is, is The Other Side of the Wind, which came out a couple of years ago. Uh, it was sort of finished by Netflix. But there were, there's been a great number of uh, posthumous things. There have been documentaries which have incorporated unfinished films, like uh, a documentary about It's All True, a film he made in Brazil in the 1940s. Uh, there was a very bad attempt to kind of uh, finish Wells's Don Quixote, but some of the TV work as well uh, has sort of emerged. So, you know, the whole idea of what constitutes the Wells filmography is always expanding. And I, what, with my book, I sort of, 
I thought, well, I, I'll take the broadest possible view of that. And so I would look at unfinished films, uh, you know, which may only exist in fragments. And I would also look at things like screenplays, which were never actually, which never got to the stage of production, because I think, uh, there's a lot to be gained by looking at, uh, at those works. Although we, of course, of course have to be kind of cautious to make lasting judgments about material, which is very provisional. That's why the archives offer so much, because Wells was working on something, you know, every day of his life. And unfortunately, a lot of the things were never able to be funded. So I think a good understanding of what he was trying to do really does require, uh, looking beyond the, you know, the 13 films that were released in his lifetime. So I tried to do that. I think, uh, you know, those archives are so big, it's going to take many, many years for researchers to really even get, you know, be able to present some idea of what he was doing. And many people are doing it. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm the only person doing it. Of course not. You know, there's going to become, there's, there's in future years, there's going to be much more coming from the Wells archives, studies of what work he was doing. And I think also, you know, unreleased film materials. Why were you in Turin? Well, I was in Turin because I received a fellowship from the Ernest Hemingway Foundation a couple of years ago to basically do a research project on the Hemingway-Wells relationship and, and also the ways in which Wells uh, responded to Hemingway's work and legacy in his own, in his films. Because there's the... You know, I guess now we have the release of The Other Side of the Wind, uh, this uh, aspect of Wells' filmmaking has become a little bit more prominent. But Wells, on several occasions, I think, tried to grapple with Hemingway and, and Hemingway's legacy. He knew Hemingway personally. They had a kind of a weird uh, rivalry slash friendship. And there's a lot of, I guess, myth about how they met and so on. But uh, I think Wells had very strong, a very strong response to uh, Hemingway's depiction of Spain and also the legacy that he had on, on tourism to Spain. Wells lived in Spain in the 60s. Uh, Wells was not particularly uh, impressed by the you know, legions of Hemingway readers who would go to Spain in the 50s and 60s and see bullfights and treat Spain as this sort of... Uh, you know, archaic paradise. I was in Turin specifically to uh, look at scripts for several Wells projects that, that kind of responded to the Hemingway legacy. One of them was uh, The Other Side of the Wind. The other one was uh, a project called Crazy Weather, which never got beyond the stage of a treatment. But it's a story about Americans in Spain in the early 70s. The result of that research is going to be published in the Hemingway Review uh, in the fall 2020 issue, so very shortly. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's called The Three Dangerous Summers because Wells kept coming back to, uh, he never really quite seems to have, uh, you know, reached a conclusion to, to this uh, question, but it was something he was obviously very uh, passionate about. But I think The Other Side of the Wind, as it has been completed in the last couple of years, uh, is a pretty good uh, indication of his thoughts on on Hemingway and machismo and and uh, that whole approach to living in uh, the modern world. Yeah, memory serves as even a little bit of bullfighting in F for Fake, which just kind of comes out of nowhere. But I'm like, okay, this is a Wells film, so of course there's got to be some bullfighting in here. Yeah, there's a tiny little thing where uh, 
he says something like this deep in the Hemingway country. And there was, there were scenes in this, in an early version of the script that directly uh, addressed, uh, bullfighting as a theme of, and, you know, in, in relation to phony bullfighting at the time. So, yeah, no, it's, it was one of his passions, but it was also something, bullfighting was something which I think he had, uh, very ambivalent view on. I mean, he did, he did start out as an enthusiast, as an aficionado, but then, uh, as he got older, I think he, he started to question the, uh, the ethics of, of, of that ritual. And, uh, he really started to lament the fact that it had become something that tourists to Spain went to see. Ultimately, he kind of renounced it. Maybe not entirely, but he, uh, he definitely disliked the the macho behavior that bullfighting aficionados would demonstrate. Yeah, and so Hemingway, obviously, the epitome of that, he kind of found quite ridiculous. Yeah, I don't know why I didn't go to uh, Ann Arbor to uh, research more of F or fake stuff. Um, I don't know if I was just afraid to go outside during the pandemic or what, but I feel like I didn't do my due diligence. Ephra Fake is one of the small group of Wells films that he was able to complete to his satisfaction. I mean, there's really only about half a dozen films released during his lifetime, which, you know, he had say over the final cut, you know, the final say. So in a sense, we can look at Ephra Fake as a completed work, which is not something that you can as easily do with, you know, all of his Hollywood films, except for Citizen Kane. Each of his Hollywood films after Citizen Kane were, were either recut by the studio or there was some level of interference. They're kind of questionable texts. In this. I mean, The Lady from Shanghai, for example, you know, it's really interesting to look at the, the screenplay and then the kind of cutting continuity of The Lady from Shanghai to see what changes were made uh, at the insistence of the studio. Um, and, you know, it, it, it was kind of a much more radical film. I think before the studio stepped in and and asserted their authority. But Ephra Fake is lucky because it's, you know, it is a film that he was able to make and complete uh to his satisfaction. It's one of that rare group. It's funny when you talked about the script for Ephra Fake, I know there's got to be a script, but the film just feels so organic. It's like, really? They they wrote that out. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are many scripts. I mean, Wells he was always typing and uh, or getting somebody to type up his notes. Um, so there is a script. I mean, it looks like it's it's guy in a, an editing suite with lots and lots of bits of film and sticking them together. But no, Wells planned that out on paper. I've seen the the script, and partially that may have been uh, for financial reasons. Maybe they needed to show that script to the producers to to get further funding. I, I'm speculating on that, but I think he he used the typewriter a lot in his planning. Well, typewriter, and it sounds like he was also doing a lot of drawings for things. He did lots of sketches. Uh, I haven't really seen any sketches in relation to f Effect, but he would sketch uh, characters, he would sketch costumes, sets, and a lot of this material's wound up in uh, the archives. Some of it's actually, there was, re there was a recent publication uh, called Portfolio, Orson Welles, uh, which uh, had a bunch of his paintings and drawings, so a year or two ago. That was published. Um, he's a really interesting artist, actually, visual artist. So you said you've got an essay coming out in the fall. I'm curious what else you've been up to. Still researching Wells because I, I find it a little hard to stop. But uh, I'm also doing um, a project on Anthony Burgess and his career in, in film. Uh, and that's an even more overwhelming archival 
uh, dive. So I guess I'm attracted to these kind of polymathic creators, you know, people who really, uh, you know, they were artists, but they, they really did, uh, the, 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 the expansiveness of the view they had is, is, is kind of staggering. And there are some overlaps between, uh, Burgess and Orson Welles because they almost collaborated on a, a musical about Harry Houdini. Matthew, where's the best place for people to keep up with you and your projects? You can visit my website, uh, com. I'm on Twitter. Well, thank you, sir. Always great to talk to you. I, I really love uh, listening to the podcast, so it's a thrill to be back on. Arson made a great documentary that fits our subject matter pretty well. It's called F for Fake. It's sort of a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants documentary. A little bit freeform. It's about the infamous art forger, Elmer D.R.A., and his biographer, Clifford Irving, who might be even better known for his fraudulent Howard Hughes biography. There's a movie called Hoax, starring Richard Gere, all about him. But F for Fake blurs the line between what is real and what isn't. Our works in stone, in paint, in print, are spared, some of them for a few decades, or a millennium or two, but everything must finally fall in war or wear away into the ultimate and universal ash. The triumphs and the frauds, the treasures and the fakes, a fact of life. We're going to die. Any film by Orson Welles is worth seeking out, but F for Fake is one of the most intriguing. All right, we are back and we were talking about F for Fake and... Spencer, you kind of mentioned this before as far as uh, how hoaxes are still so with us. And I do have to say, I noticed that uh, April 4th this year, not necessarily uh, that many hoaxes this time. <laughs> no, not, not, as, not as fun to do this year. I, I don't know why that would be. I don't know what's different about this year than years previous. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. It, 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 it's interesting. Like, um, you know, effort fake watching it now is uh, uh, obviously it's it's a, a wonderful escape, you know, from our, our current times. But there are ways in which, you know, like uh, let's let's talk about expertise again. But let's talk about it not just in relation to the art market and to effort fake. Let's talk about the problem of expertise living under covid times since you brought up, you know, April Fool's and and whatnot. There's there's a level at which I do think that this film is like radically correct to be questioning expertise. But we are now living in a time when we've so questioned expertise that that, uh, for instance, at least within the United States, it looks like our country is going to be living with the effects of of uh, COVID-19 for much longer than a lot of other nations because we won't listen to scientists. We won't listen to experts. There's a way in which, you know, this is a wonderful film. It's one of my favorites, but there's a central idea to it that I think is worth unpacking because it's also dangerous. The relativity of truth and, and knowledge and, uh, uh, yeah, I never thought of it that way or in this light. I, for years, I used to joke with my students. I said, every modern filmmaker nowadays should be just stopped they, they shouldn't be allowed to make films anymore. They should be given a shovel and they should fill in potholes for at least five years. And in those five years, when no new films are being made, we'll rediscover the old great films that nobody's watching anymore. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of happening, only it's, you know, everybody's going to the drive-in to watch Jaws for the umpteen time. Uh, the Bergmans and the Fellinis are not being dredged out to fill the empty screens, unfortunately. That was always my, my little little pipe dream. It hasn't quite come through in this COVID 
uh, in this COVID age that we're living in. Well, people want comfort food right now. You know, this is not the time necessarily to, to try foie gras if you haven't had it before. You want mac and cheese, you know. But in the comfort food that we that, that people embraced uh, during this time, just to sort of bring it back in, Tiger King has weird connections to a movie like F for Fake. You, you know, there are there are real, you know, crazy. I mean, uh, among other things, we're now all about true crime in our culture, which I find I'm into true crime, but I find it fascinating just how big true crime has become through podcasts and uh, and through documentaries on Netflix and everything. And this is a true crime movie. It's a little bit of a different kind of and, and I've taught classes in true crime and I've thought about teaching this one and I haven't before. And now I'm feeling really bad because I, I, I think that uh, I think that this becomes a kind of challenge, you know, to, to sort of. Of, uh, you know, true uh, true crime notions, but w- we are we are living in this time of uh, a lot of interest in uh, in crime in our media, uh, and a, a lot of um, attention to the way that media is manipulated, and that people won't trust media because of that manipulation. Um, and then we have uh, well, we're living in a, uh, in a in a universe of deep fakes now. That uh, you know, watch out. Uh, is there going to be a deep fake of Joe Biden saying something really? heinous, you know, dropping the N-bomb two days before the election in in the fall. I mean, just like, wait for it. (laughs) I got one for you, which is the picture of Jim Varney and Robin Williams together, and then somebody has photoshopped Jeffrey Epstein's face over Robin Williams, so it looks like Jim Varney, our favorite comedian Ernest, is pointing at Epstein, just like, look at my friend over here, and it's just like, I see people posting this, it's like, stop posting this, this is fake. Do you not realize this is fake? And, you know, if you look at the history of, of fakery, it, it, so much of it goes back to War of the Worlds in 1939, right? And the, and the birth of mass media. And, and now Wells is making it for fake in the, in the era of TV talk show hosts and, and, and where anybody can be a celebrity. And that's probably a theme in the film, that idea of celebrity, that anybody can be a celebrity. Well, yeah, I had never heard of the Million Little Pieces guy until I saw Oprah chastising him on TV saying, don't you feel bad for what you did? Like uh, America's you know, mom just scolding this poor man. I mean, what he did was wrong, but yeah, he sure did sell a lot of copies. Thanks, Oprah. Well, now, now there's been a, a movie that's based on it, and it's like a fictionalized movie of a fiction that was nonfiction at one point. And I, I haven't ever – I haven't heard good enough things about the movie to want to watch it. But it, it is sort of – that becomes an interesting kind of uh, object in the world. Like what, what exactly is that? I wonder if it recognizes the, um, you know, the scandal uh, that, that James Fry went through, or does it just treat it as a straight-ahead fiction? I, 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 don't, I don't know. Neither of you guys have seen it either, have you? The last fakery movie I saw was Can You Ever Forgive Me, which um, I enjoyed that movie quite a bit. But again, here we go, just fakery at the center of this whole thing. And this woman's trying to you know, live a decent life. And what's she going to do? Her books won't sell, so she's going to fake these letters and is able to pull this off and able to fool all the experts. And it's just it's F for fake all over again. I'm surprised there hasn't been a movie about the Hitler Diaries. I love the story of the Hitler Diaries. Uh, there's a great book out there called Hoax, which talks about the Hitler Diaries. It talks about the Shroud of Turin. Just all of these great things that have fooled people for so many years. And 
have they ever been unseated or are they still out there? Do people still believe that the Shroud of Turin is a real thing or not? I mean, I remember watching In Search Of and Arthur C. Clarke's Amazing World or all these things. And there they are talking about the Shroud of Turin. They're talking about D.B. Cooper. They're talking about, you know, uh, Howard Hughes and just all of these things. Like the 70s were a wonderful time before like mass, mass, mass media where it was just so great to be able to do hoaxes and get away with things. Wells was a co-host of one of those style shows, which I think he just lent his voice to, you know, in an afternoon and they spun out six or 12 episodes of it. But you know, Wells was a part of that tabloid sensationalist culture himself. Spencer, you mentioned the man who saw tomorrow. I can't tell you how many times I saw that on cable as a kid. You know, I saw that a, t- a ton of times. And, uh, you know, it's uh, well, let, it, so back to that idea of authority and that Wells became it, Wells as an actor was a way to, to sort of, you know, class up the joint a little bit for for a lot of lower budget kind of cruddy European films um, and even for some American films, you know, uh, get Wells in there and he's going to give you a lot of legitimacy in these documentaries. That was something. And the Paul Masson, they're playing on that. And, and actually, to, to bring it back to some contemporary stuff that's really dangerous. One of the things that's one of the things that's interesting um, uh, and I, I, it's, I, I hesitate to even bring this up because he's so toxic. But I'm going to go ahead and say that, like, one of the things that's fascinating about Donald Trump and the way that he lies is how he uses this older style of voice of authority. I mean, it's almost a camp version or a parody, but he puts on this kind of voice of authority that is not that far removed from the uh, the radio voice of authority that Wells puts on or the way that if you've ever heard, um, you know, of that of that generation, if you've ever uh, of, of like Trump's generation, if, if you've ever heard uh, William Friedkin speak, there's this way of putting on a voice of authority uh, for people that we that we don't do anymore. If anything, we we sort of play act at not having authority. Now we play act at, at being incompetent and not reading well. And it's it's interesting because Trump is sort of both at once. Like it's a a total word salad. There's no reason to take this seriously, but there's this way that he's uh, speaking and unloading all of it and also throwing out these little bon mots and and jokes uh, that that he thinks of as jokes, you know, in the moment that is a lot like this older, the man who knows a lot, who then speaks and that this is part of his grift, you know, for lying. He just says it with enough authority and figures people will believe it. Without blinking. Or this whole, people are saying, I've been hearing this. I've been hearing this. And he's in a position, his position is authority. So it's like absurd for a president to say, I'm hearing this. Like, no, 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 no. I out here in the audience, I'm hearing things. You're the president. You have experts around you that tell you things that I couldn't possibly know. You're supposed to know things, not just sort of go on rumor and like what you heard. You're not my uncle. There's a really there's an interesting craziness, a, a doubleness to this that I find, you know, kind of fascinating. Uh, Stephen Colbert, of course, played around with that voice of authority as well because it's you know popular, I guess, among the the like Fox kind of people. And I think Colbert is actually you know he's he's an interesting one in terms of playing with that authority. And it's it's interesting looking at like what he's become as he took on another show where he just has to be Stephen Colbert and he's not doing the Colbert rapport anymore. Yeah, but he definitely had that, the buttoned up, uh, just the, the very straight man, I'm giving it to you with both barrels and you're just going to have to listen to this. I mean, yeah, he, he kind of created that and rode that for a while. He was able to be the Walter Cronkite type for a while. 
I think it's a factor that makes Wells a little bit hard to take for some people now, you know, because we've we've broken down some of that authority. And of course, Wells is much more of a raconteur and, you know, he's a lot more fun than that. But there is a way in which that voice comes on with the old style voice of authority and instantly, you know, sort of post 70s. Oh, that's fake. And that's uh, that's somebody who's. you know, who, who I just shouldn't listen to. And in a way, Wells is interesting as another kind of fake or phony, because this is a guy who's obsessed with the kings in uh, Shakespeare and is obsessed with making these kingly stories and putting himself in the role of kings. Uh, but ultimately, you know, he's he's scrappy and he's trying to get money together. He's, he's like an upper middle class kid who uh, slides into some good opportunities, but basically is very much not a king, but somehow thinks of himself, you know, through these, these stories of kings. But then that said, uh, I, have to, I have to mention Falstaff. Uh, and, and that's, of course, his biggest character and where I think he becomes, you know, sort of, sort of truest. And then, uh, and then painting himself as the, as the phony authority and F for fake, I think is is a, is related to the Falstaff figure. Well, there's an element too of the trickster, of course, in Wells, and there's an element of that in in the character of Falstaff. But you know, uh, Wells had started out as the boy wonder, as the yes. authority on Shakespeare, and and you know had fallen from grace and was rehabilitating his public image and reinventing himself as as this more kindly, more jovial. TV personality, you know, and I, and I think all of that kind of feeds into F for Fake and its and its criticism of the voices of authority. And yeah. let's not remember he 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 began his career prior to 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 moving into radio and theater. He wrote a book on Shakespeare, co-wrote a book right. on Shakespeare. So he was one of those authorities. Yeah, it's true. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. That's right. We're back next week with our first entry in our Czech Timber series. We're going to be doing something a little special for that by providing a podcast that acts like a commentary track for the film All My Good Countrymen. On that, I will be joined by Chris Dashu and Spencer Parsons. And speaking of Spencer... I want to thank my co-hosts, Spencer and Peter. Spencer, what is keeping you busy these days? Uh, well, I have a new puppy, uh, so that is keeping me very busy. And the moment that I finish this, I'm going to have – he's giving me the hairy eyeball right now, and I definitely will have to take him outside the second that this is over. You know, like everybody, I'm, I'm working on my COVID novel and you know, my COVID screenplays. <laughs> 
um, I did get together with some actors and had a rehearsal for a movie that was supposed to be happening this summer, but for obvious reasons isn't. And, you know, we're, we're, uh, hoping to put it together at the soonest possible, uh, opportunity, uh, because we had a lot of fun hanging out outside with masks on and, uh, doing improv, keeping myself busy. Yeah. And Peter, how about you? What's going on with you? I am I'm wrapping up a, a documentary that I've been shooting for the best part of the last three years since you and I last spoke, actually, on uh, private film collectors and the wealth of film history that has been saved by private individuals, those weird little film collectors. And it's fascinating. It's It's a fascinating history. And there's Lots of very interesting people I've met while making this film and having rewatched that for fake, I'm, I'm questioning how I'm editing the film. I may need to, <laughs> I may need to jazz things up a little bit, but that's what I'm working on. And, uh, yeah, it's coming along well. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
coincide with the lack of stimulants, inspirations now here. Things have French, let's have a rush of energy, brings small but production put back. Things have a French, let's have attack with your criticism, take away my knowledge, pump information. Things have a French, let's have show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.